Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode of the Smart Economy Podcast, I chat with Chad Barraford, a core developer at ThorChain. ThorChain is a decentralized settlement layer that facilitates layer one to layer one token swaps between eight chains, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain, Avalanche, the Cosmos Hub, Dogecoin, Litecoin, and Bitcoin Cash. ThorChain is secured by its native token, Rune, which deterministically accrues value as more assets are deposited into the network. In this conversation, Chad and I talk about the importance of a decentralized multi-chain swapping protocol, the risks associated with blockchain-to-blockchain bridges, ThorChain's synthetic assets versus wrapped assets on other networks, the protocol's economic security model, the suite of tools and dApps in the ThorChain ecosystem, how ThorChain enables borrowing and lending, and much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with Chad, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today we're joined by Chad Barraford, the lead, the tech lead, a core dev at ThorChain, a man of many titles and has his hands in a lot of pots when it comes to the ThorChain project. How are you doing, Chad? Good, good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, really excited to have you. We were kind of just chatting a moment ago and I've been very psyched on the ThorChain project dating back to way early last year during the BEP swap days. <laughs> Gotta love those BEP swap days. Those, those are great, man. Uh, that's, it's, it's almost funny to think about, but yeah. Yeah. Those days were awesome. Yeah, it was really cool to just kind of like grok ThorChain back then. It's weird because when you're when you're in a project and you just kind of like buy into it at the onset, it's for me at least, like it's easy to kind of stop keeping my finger on the pulse. And so I just like believed in what you guys were doing and I contributed to the LPs. I love the L1 to L1 swaps. So researching what you guys have been up to and like a lot of the crazy cool things that ThorChain has done recently was like, wow, getting me recyced on the project. But before we go into all the cool things that is happening in the ThorChain ecosystem and umbrella, we kind of both have a similar story in that we were doing something completely different before we got into the crypto space. So what were you doing before you got bit by the crypto bug? And kind of when was it that you got bit? Yeah, I had a job. I was a uh, software engineer at a company called RStudio. And RStudio is like one of the premier companies that builds tools for an open source programming language called R, which is for like data analysis. And so I contributed to or one of the one of the main devs of the company and, and I helped build uh, some of their flagship products. I spent like six years doing that, writing mostly in Go. And that's when I started to travel and that's when I started to like meet other people and I met some crypto people. And that's when I started to kind of get like, you know, pilled in a sense. I fell so hard and so fast in love with crypto that I just had to to like just quit everything and just be singularly focused. Everything I got is going to go into this go into the space. And when was that? Was that like 2017, 2019 was Thorchain your first project? 
Yeah, I uh, that was in 2017, I think, in October 2017, I think. That's when I first when I bought my first Bitcoin. And then I quit, I think it was in December. I think like mid-December is when I actually quit my job. Like right when the, you know, everything crashed right at the end of December and back in 2017. So I quit then. It only took me like two, three months to like kind of convince myself that this is what I have to do with my life and, you know, move away from everything that's like secure, right? And just move to something that's completely un- unknown abyss of crypto. And like, I didn't even know what I was going to do yet. Like I didn't, I, I had some ideas. Some, I had a startup that I worked on called CryptoCades. It was like an online gaming site where you can win Bitcoin. But like, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do yet. Like I was contributing to Lightning Network a little bit. Like I had a couple of PRs I opened up for the Lightning Network and I started to kind of poke around different areas and and kind of just educate and learn as much as I can about the space for a long period of time, just ingesting as much information as I could. And it wasn't until 2019, which was but like a year later, year and a year and a half later, did I meet one of the co-founders of the project and him and I started talking about this idea, this concept, and we started working on it together. And, and it was pretty monumental time for sure. Yeah. I, uh, I bought my first Bitcoin in summer of 2017. And then in October, 2018, at like the very bottom of the bear, I quit my government job. I was an urban planner and like super secure, super cushy, super safe, and went full-time to cover the Neo blockchain. And that's what I've been doing basically since 2018. So you had a little bit more conviction and jumped ship a little bit quicker than I did. <laughs> but I remember back in the day, especially 2017, like it was atomic swaps. Yeah. That was what the future was going to be. And it was just kind of what everyone was talking about. And it wasn't until Thorchain came along where you could do L1 to L1 native swaps, where this kind of like narrative re-emerged. But something that's really surprised me is that the crypto industry today isn't like losing their minds like people were in 2017 with the future of atomic swaps. So maybe philosophically speaking, can you just share why Thorchain is such an important project in the blockchain and crypto space today? So up until Thorchain, the ability to move your value from chain to chain was dominated by centralized exchanges. And you could talk about local Bitcoins, you could talk about atomic swaps, you could talk about these things, but none of those things are really practical to use. You really couldn't do those in any kind of reasonable volume, right? Like they were toted as something that would solve a major problem, but in reality, it just never manifested that way. Like just there wasn't the liquidity, there wasn't the same demand for it because it was just so hard to find a counterparty to any individual trade you were trying to make. Not to mention that even that counterparty can like cancel their their thing like last minute if they want. They're like up to a day or a week, depending on how their contract is written. And that just becomes like, you know, an immovable object in some sense. I mean, I subscribe to what Satoshi started, right? I subscribe to the idea of decentralization. That's such a critically important concept. And when centralization is the only place where you can accomplish something, especially within the crypto sphere, like I take personal offense to that. That should offend all of us as a community, as a cryptocurrency community that like, why am I relying on Binance to be able to buy Ethereum, uh, Ether tokens or whatever? Like that is fundamentally broken, right? And so with the design and, and with, with the innovation of Cosmos, the innovation of special signatures and the uh, slip-based fee model that we had came up with and other things that came through, we created the different components and parts that were required to actually do larger trades at volume 
And we've done like billions, I think like 10 plus billion dollars of trade volume or something. I can't remember the exact number top of my head, but like we actually made it feasible and practical to do a fully decentralized system that has no points of singularity in them. There's no like team that has all the keys or anything like this, or even like, you know, it doesn't really quite exist. And we were the first ones to really do it. And it took us years of effort and work. Like this is one of the most technically complex technically ambitious projects in, in DeFi, if not in larger crypto as well. And it took extended period of time of lots of hard work to get it there. Like, I think I spent probably like 9 a.m. to midnight every day, seven days a week uh, for about a year and a half to be able to produce this code base that does this thing for for the betterment of the entire industry, not just of the Thorchain industry, but like literally for the betterment of the entire industry of crypto. That's why... I saw the need for it because we needed to be able to, to get rid of centralized entities. If you believe in Bitcoin, which most of us do, then you need a decentralized way to, to get in and out of it. If you have to go through centralized parties every time you want to trade Bitcoin, well, hmm, that kind of defeats the point to some regard. If you can't get in and out of it in a decentralized way, then like, you know, it's just not quite achieving the vision of what it should be. And we all want Bitcoin to achieve its vision of what it should be, like me included. And this is just, in some ways, my attempt to help Bitcoin, help Ethereum, help AVAX, like everybody to create a more unified system away from the siloed systems of like different ecosystems, and different chains to create more of a single system that everybody can just unilaterally move in any direction they want, whenever they want, without any friction whatsoever. Like that's part of the vision. Yeah. And we unfortunately uh, have to get reminded of this every few years because as I think as a, a like an asset class and a group of people who are really psyched on the kind of parabolic movements that cryptocurrencies can make. We allow like our greed to blind us from time to time. And then we have to have a, a Sam Bankman fraud yes, or a collapse of FTX to remind us that we do need to value these decentralized networks, which is why we got involved in them in the first place, right? It's funny. And I just tweeted this other day, the other day, like of how fast people are just to forget about the core principles of what it is that we stand for as, a, as an industry. Like, we want like other people to custodial, right? We want we chased crazy hundred thousand percent APY yield, which is obviously you know nonsense, right? Like there are so many things we do in this industry that we quickly forget about. Oh, we don't care about decentralization. Like if it's cheaper gas fees, I'll I'll use it just because you know whatever. And you're like you completely forget about like the the core principles of what we're trying to achieve, and that's really sad. But like we have to be reminded of it, like because every cycle we have new people come into the space who haven't really gotten their feet wet yet and they haven't they weren't around for the Mt. Gox days and they weren't around for the FTX days and they weren't around for the BlockFi's and the Celsius's and the even the collapse of like terrors and the collapse of ohm and the collapse of like other projects that just didn't work out for one reason or another. They don't come with that knowledge. They have to learn it the hard way as we all did previously, right? In the previous uh, cycles. It's an unfortunate part of reality. But that's true. Like even Ponzi schemes have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, right? Like thousands of years, maybe. There's nothing new. People just have to be continuously reminded about stay away from Ponzi's. They don't work so well for you. <laughs> maybe if you're early enough, it works well for you. But generally speaking, for 99% of people, you get wiped out. This is not an endorsement for Ponzi schemes or to get in them early. <laughs> no. No, absolutely not. They're not very helpful. They don't achieve the goal of what we're trying to trying to build within the DeFi space, for sure. Yeah, and... and- after getting burnt by, you know, 
having that FOMO last year of missing out on Ohm and magic internet money and seeing all these like super high APRs, it's really refreshing to kind of go to like ThorSwap and see like something realistic, like 6% interest on your ETH or 4% interest on your Bitcoin. But before we get into like the vast array of tools under the DoorChain umbrella, I just want to hear from you, your expert opinion. How is the L1 to L1 swapping process on ThorChain different than atomic swaps? Uh, good question. So an atomic swap, you find you as a seller and somebody else as the buyer. You're like trading Bitcoin or in the Ether across the wire in a sense. And then you open up a contract where, with an agreed amount, um, amount of Bitcoin and, and Ether. And then after so much period of time, if everything goes smoothly, there's just like the transactions happen in both directions and you, and you both get your both get your assets without the needing of a, a third party to, to mediate that kind of trade. But you have to agree upon like the assets, you agree upon the quantity, you agree upon what the price is going to be. And then if that all goes smoothly, you can still have people like cancel a day later. If, they, if the price moves against somebody and the price of Bitcoin has shifted, maybe they don't want to make this trade anymore because now, now it's a bum deal for them. So they kind of can, they can cancel it if they want to. In ThorChain's case, you're instead of trading a person to person, you're trading a person to pool. And so there's a pool of liquidity that you're that you're trading with, that you're interacting with, that always has uh, a price available to you, right? There's no trying to convince each other what the price is between asset A or asset B. That's just the pool as assets. There's always a counterparty to every single trade at any given moment, no matter what it is. People can just throw in money and they'll get some money out, and there'll be an appropriate free market amount of money. And so because of that, like it's they always have a counterparty it means that there's somebody else always willing to make the trade for you. So you don't have to wait for somebody else, like some some other order on or an order book or something like this to, to eventually come down the stream and like, okay, I'll finally do the deal with you. Or they just never come because there's just not that much liquidity, right? And so here, because of this, this pool here, you can just interact and trade instantaneously without needing to wait. Cool. Thanks. And I just want to preface with some of the questions I might ask during our conversation might just be very like simple or high level, but I want people who have never heard of ThorChain to be able to walk away and have a, a very good understanding of what this project is and, and what it represents. So one of the, the core devs in the NEO ecosystem took a peek at the ThorChain project, and they were having a hard time grokking how ThorChain operates differently than like a bridging service. If you're bridging something, you're wrapping a token on one chain, and then you're having a representation of it on another chain. But with ThorChain, the uniqueness is that the Rune token is used to be backed in liquidity pools. So when you're trading between tokens, you're trading Bitcoin to Rune and then Rune to Ethereum. So for somebody who just doesn't understand the difference between bridging services and they kind of look at ThorChain and they, they equate it to bridging, how would you talk to them and tell them what the differences are between the two? Yeah. So for me, when I think about a bridge, this is my own definition. So people can throw it in the trash if they want to. But when I think about a bridge, I think about the idea of like taking an asset like Bitcoin and then creating a one-to-one -one representative of that or what's called a wrap asset on Ethereum or AVAX or like enter chain here, doesn't really matter. And then once it's that Bitcoin's on the Ethereum blockchain, then you can use it to do all sorts of miscellaneous things within the Ethereum ecosystem, right? For trades or swaps or loans or whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. And whenever you have that system, there's always a requirement of trust, even in the systems where they claim that there's no trust involved. But like even like, you know, AVAX, for example, they have wardens 
who manage that Bitcoin, quote unquote wardens, which are six of them. And they're specially picked, select, hand selected by, you know, the AVEX CEO himself, I think, or something like this, right? REN BDC, like they run all the nodes themselves. WBDC, it's just publicly centralized wrapped tokens. Like all of these wrapped tokens are, are always trusted in one form or another. Some are more trusted than others, but they still require trust to function, right? Altruism to, to actually function. In Thorchain's case, we don't like wrapped tokens. And so we just trade value for value. So when you make a trade from Bitcoin to Ether, like you give up layer one Bitcoin and you get layer one Ether on the other side. And if something happens later on, say the, the bridge was broken or something like this, you don't give a shit because you got your Ether. You're no longer exposed to it. But if, you had, if you're using a bridge where there's a WBDC on Ethereum, for example, and then WBDC gets exploited and all the Bitcoin is lost or like, you know, heaven forbid something of this nature happens, then you're screwed because the thing that's actually backing your WBDC is now zero. All right. So you have this prolonged exposure to these bridges, which is really problematic because you don't want to take on that extra risk. Like you have to take on the Bitcoin risk of the Bitcoin protocol. Then you take on the bridge risk of the, the wrapped asset. Then you take on the protocol risk of whatever smart contract you're using to like, you know, do a loan or whatever you're trying to accomplish. You're compounding your risk together. And in the bridge case, it's especially bad because most bridges are exposed to both like human risk, CFI risk, because it's like a bunch of single individuals. Like we've seen, I think with the Ronin bridge who got like hacked because like one of the devs got like downloaded like a malicious PDF and like all the keys were like, you know, released or something like, like that's, you know, it's CFI risk, right? But then we also saw Wormhole got attacked through, you know, a DeFi uh, pattern, right? So like they're exposed to both CFI and DeFi risk added together, compounded together to be like even more risky, which is why we see so many bridges hacked all the time, because there's so much risk associated with those guys, right? So you're you're compounding the risk of a bridge plus the layer one, plus the other protocol, plus the other chain. And you're just like adding all this risk together, which like is obviously very risky, right? But in Thorchain's case, like you're just taking your Bitcoin, you're swapping it for Ether, and then you're using that Ether to, to accomplish the goals you're trying to accomplish, fairly significantly reducing the amount of risk you're actually taking on. It's a much cleaner way of thinking about it, for sure. So if, if like a dev is coming to the Thorchain docs and they see synthetic assets, how would you describe the differences between a Thorchain synthetic asset and maybe something that's wrapped? So a wrapped asset is a one-to-one between the, the backing of it. So, wrapped, so WBC is a wrapped asset. It's backed by Bitcoin itself, right? And a one-to-one. In a synthetic asset, the backing is comprised of one or more assets. Like synthetics, the, the protocol on Ethereum, for example, is, is an example of that. And for us, like when we talk about the synthetic Bitcoin or synthetic Ethereum that's on our chain, the liquidity or the value of that thing is backed by the pool, which the pool is comprised of both Bitcoin and Rune or Ether plus Rune or AVAX plus Rune or whatever it is. And the reason why that's better than a wrapped asset is because because it's back in part because of Rune, which is the same asset people are using to bond up to run validator nodes, right? There's a tight coupling between the people who are validating and the, the asset itself versus if you were to bond up with a, a say there's a new bridge chain, let's call it like dark chain and dark chain is a dark token and you bond up with dark token and people send in Bitcoin and they mint dark Bitcoin or something like this. Well, if the dark token goes down in value because of something happens or whatever happens, it can drop below the value of the Bitcoin that you're supposed to be securing. That becomes highly problematic. If you give me $10 and I give you, I want to give you $1,000 to secure, well, that's not really good 
for me, because now you can walk away with my thousand dollars and yeah, I'll keep your $10 you gave me, but like, obviously you're going to make out like a bandit in this context. So the asset that you're using to secure the network, the Stark token, has to be directly correlational to the Bitcoin that you're, you're trying to secure. If there's not a direct correlation that, that the Dark token's price comes down suddenly, that the Bitcoin quantity in the network will come down suddenly with it to make sure that the, that the value of the Dark token is always worth more than the, the non-Dark tokens, the Bitcoin, the Ether, the various tokens that it's securing. That's what we call economic security. And that's why like, we're the only project in the space that actually does this, by the way. I don't know why that is, but it's rather silly. Like we are the only ones to think about security, not just from a cryptographic perspective or a technological perspective, but also from an economic perspective, which is, I wish more people would do that. Yeah. And so I love that the protocol implements like game theory directly into its success. So for folks who aren't aware, can you share what a validator is? what a bond is and how bonding is actually putting a little bit of skin in the game. And if you decide to basically run away, abscond with the assets, how you'll, you'll be harming yourself more because you had to provide a bond. Correct. So each validator, there's about approximately close to hundred of them, give or take 10 or so. And each validator runs a full node of Bitcoin and Ethereum, a full node of AVAX and a full node of Doge and BNB, Litecoin, whatever. And they make observations about what had happened on Bitcoin, what had happened on Ethereum. And it, each individual validator tells the chain like, oh, I saw this. I observed this transaction took place from this address to our address with this memo, with this amount, blah, 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 all this information. And then once the two-thirds majority of those validators get an agreement on that particular transaction, then it becomes real within the Thorchain network, becomes part of our state in a sense. And now we think we have we got more Bitcoin because you send us in some Bitcoin and we're going to do a trade to Ether or some, some other asset. But bonding is the, is the practice of like making sure that they have something at risk, right? We, we can't just have people altruistically run validators that if they get something wrong, there's no slap on the wrist. There's no punishment for being malicious or doing something you know that's counterproductive to the network. We need to create the incentives, the proper incentives to make sure everybody does the correct thing. And so people bond up with a minimum of 300,000 room. Most of the time it's actually closer to 900,000, which is a lot of money. And that's held over their head like a guillotine. Like the network has this money that's yours. And if you do something we don't like as a protocol, then we have this guillotine that's over your neck to be able to slash and take away your room. So an example of like, if you were to run enough validators, which you would need to run like at least 14 of them, which is hard to do, but just say you did it anyway. And you had all that money that you put up, let's, let's just call it like $20 million or something like this, whatever the number would be. You wouldn't have access to $30 million of the Bitcoin. You'd have access to maybe $10 million of Bitcoin and Ethereum and other assets, maybe 12 or 13, whatever it might be. Depends upon the state of the network. But you always have access to far less than the money that you put up to get into that position. So if you were to steal the, you know, the $10 million worth of Bitcoin and Ethereum various assets, you would be slashed $15 million of, a, of room from your bond, right? So you just lost a boatload of money. You basically just spent $15 million to buy $10 million worth of Bitcoin, which is congratulations, you're an idiot. That's a <laughs> terrible idea, right? That's part of the, what we call the economic security, that, that that incentive is always there. Even in the scenario where rooms prices just like plummets for some reason, Arbitrage bots will buy up Rune and they'll sell it through the market and then remove Bitcoin from the pool, ensuring that the value of that Bitcoin always is less than the value of the, the Rune assets. And that's such a key and an important concept of what we like to think about when we talk about economic security. 
so it's baked into when you're buying the rune, you're buying the opportunity to become a validator node. It's baked into the protocol that you have to pay a certain percentage more in rune than in the native asset you're talking about. So do I have to put in like a like a 66% increase of rune and Bitcoin when I become a Bitcoin validator on the ThorChain network? As a validator, the only thing you have to provide is room. You don't have to provide any Bitcoin. The rest of the community does that. LPs uh, do that. Liquidity providers do that. You just have to provide the room side of things, and which is a, a minimum of 300,000. And there's like what we call like a, a bond war where people have to like the higher bonds are the ones that get churned in the network. So like you want to be one of the wealthier people in a sense, just so that you can provide more value, more security to the network itself. And is there a limit on the amount of validators? Because you said it's around 100 right now. Is that going to increase in the future? Will that be something that like the core team decides? Or is that going to be something that the market decides? Uh, well, the core team doesn't really decide much at all. I mean, in the end, it's the validators who choose what gets adopted and what doesn't get adopted. Right now, I think there's a hard-coded limit of an artificially hard-coded limit of like 120 validators. It can go up to, you know, theoretically, it could go to 200 or maybe even 250, depending upon the limitations of what Cosmos SDK allows. But I would also say that, like, how many people in the world actually have 300,000 room, right? Or like half a million dollars worth of room or so, like, not that many, right? So we're probably not going to get to a point where there's going to be 10,000 validators of this network just because probably not going to be 10,000 people who are millionaires or whatever of the rune asset and be able to to run you know validators that may shift in the future like i don't know like maybe that will actually happen but like for right now i think we'll probably be stuck around 100 or so give or take plus or minus 10 or so and and we'll be fluctuating back and forth between them i'm sure yeah and is there a, a total token supply cap on the rune token yes it's it's 500 million is the, is the supply cap I feel like a lot of Cosmos assets are like, you know, infinite mint scenarios where they can just mint as much as they want to pay out delegated proof of stake and that kind of stuff, which doesn't make sense to me. For us, though, we, we kind of like the idea of like a limited supply. And so Rune is 500 million uh, hard capped. Yeah. And, and the price of Rune changes based off of essentially like the activity on the network, the assets that it's paired against. So that's really interesting from like a price point perspective that... Rune could like really have it could go to like two hundred, three hundred dollars a token simply by how people use the network and the other assets that it's paired against. Yeah. So if you think about another AMM like Uniswap, for example, which everybody's familiar with, they have a uni token, right? Which is a governance token, but it has no relationship whatsoever to the success or failure of the network itself. Like it could see a trillion dollars of trade volume in a day. But that wouldn't necessarily affect the value of the UD token. In Thorchain's case, the Rune token is baked into its its core. And so anytime you're interfacing with Thorchain, even the, the simple act of, of uh, selling your Bitcoin to buy Ether or vice versa, that drives value approval into the Rune token, inherently so. When you provide Bitcoin to our, our savers product, which we just launched like three weeks ago, you're actually creating buy pressure when you do that onto the Rune token, whether you're aware of it or not. Almost everything you do here within the, within the Thorchain's network accrues value into the Rune token. And so as the network becomes more successful, has more trades, more volume, more depths, more whatever, like all these things, inherently that creates buy pressure onto the Rune asset and the growth of the Rune token's price and its market cap. So Rune is kind of like uh, the canary in the coal mine for the price of other assets. So does Thorchain use an Oracle network? 
to determine the price of the L1 assets that it's paired against. And I'm, I'm kind of like lobbing you a softball. So I'll also just ask beyond the Oracle question, like how does arbitrage keep the price of the assets uh, realistic with the rest of the market? Yeah, good question. So this network was designed with the mentality, the subscription of no dependencies. Because whenever you have dependencies, you're just you're introducing risk, right? Like we saw that with Terra when it started to collapse and then Chainlink decided to stop reporting the price of, I think it was Luna, once it hit like 10 cents, something like this. And then a bunch of DeFi products just got like cleared out because Chainlink stopped doing the thing that it promised it was going to do. So for me, I hate the idea of dependencies. I want Fortune to become completely self-reliant so that it doesn't rely on the success or failure of any other project or system or protocol or service in the entire space. They can fail, they can succeed Thorchain is completely self-reliant. So there's no external oracles of any kind happening at any point to this entire system. Instead, as you alluded to, we rely on arbitrage, right? And so in the pool, you might have, you're going to have two assets, which one's going to be Rune and one's going to be some other asset. It could be Bitcoin or Ether or, or Doge or something like this. And the network always treats the Rune side and the pool side as equal value. From the network's perspective, those two stacks of coins are dollar the same. But in reality, the, maybe the market price is a little, disagrees with this concept. Maybe the Bitcoin's worth a little bit more than what the pool perceives as the price right now. That means that, that the network will basically allow you to send in Rune and take out Bitcoin for a slightly higher value, right? Which is what we call an arbitrage opportunity. Then you can sell that Bitcoin on you know, Binance or some other place for a profit. So we rely on just the, the free market incentives for people to correct the pool price relative to the market price because they're financially incentivized to do so. It's literally free money on the table. If you want to take it, you can go ahead and take it. Typically, it's bots doing all this trading because it's like hyper fast and all these things. But like that's what keeps the prices correct in the system. It's just free market incentives. And again, it's another nod to how cool the protocol is that it acknowledged economic activity and game theory and the way that people participate in markets and just kind of made that as an assumption as part of the protocol. Yep. So one of the like the aha moments for me was I can trade Bitcoin to Ethereum, L1 to L1 without having to go through a centralized entity. And that in and of itself is really cool. What about tokens on other networks? Like what if I wanted to trade secret on the Cosmos SDK with the Uniswap token? Is it possible to trade um, like ERC 20 tokens to, I don't know what the standard is for Cosmos but can I go through ThorChain as well to trade tokens from tokens on, on other networks? Yeah, that, that's called a CW20, by the way. So I think initially when we launched this network, we had this mentality that we're just going to have all the tokens on ThorChain. And that just becomes like the biggest exchange in the world because it just has everything. And you know you can trade whatever you want, whenever you want. And then after like just see how the market reacted and see how the use cases were, we actually found that wasn't really necessarily practical for our cases because we can't have an unlimited amount of Pool depths like, like Uniswap can have you know thirteen trillion dollars worth of value in their in their things, and that's fine. That's from a security perspective. Obviously, they don't have anything close to that, but like they could, right? And so we actually shifted our viewpoint to talk about less about a long tail assets like ERC twenties or CW twenties, and more about just just focusing on the gas assets, but then also integrating DEXs. This is what we call DEX aggregation. So this is the idea that I could start on Ethereum. And I want to say I want to get to like Secret Network, for example, right? I can start with, you know, USDC on, on Ethereum, swap it via, you know, Uniswap, 
or one inch, something like this, to ether. The ether gets sent to Thorchain. Thorchain swaps it to atom. The atom gets sent to uh, osmosis. Osmosis swaps it to secret, and the secret goes to your wallet, whatever the hell, your Kepler wallet, whatever wallet you're using, to receive that tokens. Now, from your perspective, all you actually did was just send a single transaction for USDC. And then behind the scenes, all this complexity things happen about you know figuring out how to get the gas to work right, bridging across multiple chains, blah blah blah, blah doing all this work, and it's just, it's just abstracted away from you. It's so it's so beautiful, it's so simple, it's so like it's so clean. And so the part of the idea is that like we want to be the conduit to connect every dex to every other dex in the entire ecosystem, not just like one chain or two chains, but like all of the chains, more or less, right? And so then all of a sudden, every dex in the world has access to every asset and the liquidity of every other DEX of the entire cryptocurrency space. Let that just kind of like seep into your, just the idea that seep into your brain just for one second, because that's a ridiculous notion. I mean, that's that would make central exchanges, you know, shake in their pants because now they can't compete with DeFi because DeFi just has the asset they want when they want it. You don't have to spend six months trying to like negotiate with central exchanges to pay them $300,000 and then give them a bunch of tokens for liquidity, blah, blah, blah. It's like a huge pain by centralized exchanges when we go through that procedure and process. But now we can get to a place where like you can single trade, single transaction access to any asset you want, whenever you want, without permission, without signing up, and you can do within minutes. That's insane. Like that's where we're heading as, as an industry, which is I'm super excited about. And is this something that like ThorSwap is going to offer? So ThorSwap is the user interface for using the backend technology that is ThorChain. Will I one day be able to go to ThorSwap and say, I want to trade secret for uni, and then this will all happen automatically? Yes. In fact, ThorSwap already supports a lot of this today. They actually created an API for devs to use where you can actually say, I have asset A on chain B. And I want to get to, you know, asset X on chain Y or something like this. And it'll just create like five or six different pathways of getting there and then select, give you like, here's the one we recommend because this is like the cheapest, you know, way of getting there. And so like it already supports it today. Like you can already do large trades on ThorChain to one inch and other places. Uh, like Pangolin and Trader Joe on AVAX is already supported and like more chains are like are coming downstream. That's already being done today it's already it's already launched and shipped and working functioning today we have more to, to expand out into like the secret network and osmosis for example which is something we want to do in the long term but like that's just already happened it's already midway how do you guys decide what chain to support next because there's a lot of really cool protocols out there like the folks here in colorado know me as like a neo shill because i've just been covering the project for four and a half years but like how do you choose whether to integrate neo or mina or some sort of really cool chain that's coming down. Like, do you need a community vote? Is it a grant that needs to be distributed? What's that process like? Yeah. So the first part of it is just all the dev work that requires to do so. If you go to dev. I think it's dev.fortune.org, I want to say, or, or .com. I can't remember which one it is, but like, you can see the, the docs of how you can do that. So it's building the actual chain client with our Bifrost. It's building smoke tests to make sure everything works and fine, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's contributing to XChain.js so that all the UIs can uh, utilize your new chain, whatever that, that thing is. And there's like marketing efforts too, to make sure that the new chain and ThorChain kind of operate together to kind of like broadcast and communicate about this new thing that's happening. Uh, that's part of it right there. But there also is like, 
the chain is operated and owned by the validators themselves. And so any new chain that gets added, it goes through a, a community vote. And so you have to convince the community to think that, you know, Mina or Neo or whatever the insert chain here is worthwhile. And then some of the things we look at as a community is like, well, what is the economic value of this particular, like what is the, the total value of the economic, of the, the ecosystem of this particular chain? Uh, how bullish are the community behind this chain? Like, is nobody really asking for it? Like think like Binance Smart Chain, for example, massive chain, like economically huge in terms of like you know dollars and cents. But how many people from Binance Smart Chain are actually asking for integration? Well, not that much, not that I've seen. But then you have the other ones like you know Dash or Radix, who are smaller chains, not as economically powerhouses like Binance Smart Chain might be, but the community behind it is like ravenous, like they're dying for it in a sense, right? Like they love the idea. And so which one would actually provide the swaps and the volume and the liquidity to the network? That's what we look for as a community. And that's a very like, you know, soft target to hit, like different people have different viewpoints of like, what would be more beneficial for the network? Would it be adding Monero versus adding Binance Smart Chain versus adding Dash versus adding Neo or like whatever it might be. And people will voice their different perspectives and debate and argue as a community about what the right thing is to do. But in the end, you got to get two thirds majority of the validators to agree that this is a good thing to do, whatever that is. Yeah, really cool. I haven't really grokked what the Thor token represents. So could you just share a little bit of information about what the Thor token is and its relationship with ThorChain and Rune? Yeah, so the Thor token is not actually part of the Thor chain project. Okay. The Thor token is part of Thor Swap, which is a UI built on top of ThorChain. You know, put it that way. In full transparency, I was an uh, angel investor into ThorSwap myself, just so people know of that. So how it works is, is that they have a vault on Ethereum. Uh, I think it's an ERC2646 or something like this. If I get remember correctly, I, I may get the number wrong. But And basically, when you use their UI, they get an affiliate fee. So they charge users you know, X dollars and cents when they do a trade, some, some number of bips. And then a certain percentage of that goes to the team. To, to, to the devs and whatnot to build ThorSwap and build the, U, the UI and the APIs and all these kind of things, the SDKs that they're doing, which they're doing great work on. And part of it goes to buy up the Thor token and lock it into that vault, which goes to the people who lock up their tokens. So it's basically a way for you to, if you're bullish on ThorSwap and the growth of that UI, you can profit on that by buying the Thor token, locking it up in their in their vault and then earning more tokens from all the swaps and trades happening through their UI. It's actually pretty brilliant. Is that also like a governance token as well? Like I noticed that there's a proposal to burn Thor. So will people be able to vote on that using their Thor tokens or what other kind of utility does it offer? Uh, I don't know if it's actually used for governance or not, to be honest with you. I can't really actually remember off the top of my head. There might be a governance on it, but I'm not sure how that, that process is, to be honest with you. It'd be great to have somebody from the Thor swap team that understands it more deeply than I to be able to comment on those things. So this is also really cool because like the ThorChain ecosystem is expanding beyond just like initially what Rune was supposed to be and like what ThorChain was supposed to represent, which is, of course, trustless, permissionless L1 to L1 token swaps. One of the things that got me really excited back in the day when I first started LPing was this protection against impermanent loss. So I noticed that this is on the chopping block potentially. How did ThorChain or how does it still at the time of recording provide protection against a permanent loss? And why is the team thinking about axing this? Yeah, good question. So impermanent loss happens whenever you have two assets in a pool 
And as trading happens and you you gain more asset and you lose another asset because just prices change, you experience what people refer to as impermanent loss, right? And for us, when we look at the, the data for ThorChain, because we have a new fee model called a slip-based fee model, it's much more profitable for LPs than like a simple XYK of 30 bips or something like this. And so after observing, I think it was like six months or a year of like economic data, we realized that after 100 days, very, very few people actually experience impermanent loss because the fees they're gaining during, the, during those 100 days is worth more than the IL that they experience. And so they end being in the, in the green, right? In, in matter of speaking. And so we started in permanent loss protection as a way of uh, relieving concerns that people might have about becoming an LP, right? They're like, I don't want to experience permanent loss, blah, blah, blah. And so I'm not going to do it. And so give them reason like, well, no, if you would effectively had just held your tokens, the, the asset in the room that you were going to put into the network and just held it and you become at a loss after 100 days of LP, then the network will actually take its reserve, which is about 170 million, 160 million, whatever how the number is, and pay out, out what the difference is, just to cover your basis, just so you, you you never have to worry about that particular element to it. And in reality, like the amount of room the network actually has to pay out is actually very very small, a very small amount. And so it ended up not even being that big of a deal, right? From from our perspective. So the reason why we're thinking about axing it though is because. We've recently launched a new feature called Savers, which gives you single asset exposure to, to in single asset yield. So you can put in Bitcoin and earn more Bitcoin without selling half your Bitcoin into Rune or being price exposed to the Rune asset. And so just Bitcoin on Bitcoin yield straight up, like the same thing as you would have gotten in BlockFi interest accounts. But instead of using GBDC as like the, the revenue source for that yield that you get on your Bitcoin and your Bitcoin, you use the, the pool revenue, the swaps, the trades, the block rewards, blah, 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 that produce yield for those uh, LPs. And you basically take on half the yield. Instead of getting 100% of your yield, you get half the yield because you're taking on half the risk. And so with that as an option now, if you're worried about IL, well, then just throw Bitcoin in the network and, and get that as much as you want. And if you if you don't care about IL, then just be a dual-sided LP and then take on the risks of LP, of impermanent loss that come with that. And so I just don't feel like it's really needed anymore, to be honest with you. Yeah. And when I'm contributing to an LP, like let's say I'm in the, the Bitcoin LP, what am I receiving rewards in? Am I receiving rewards in Rune or am I receiving rewards in Rune and Bitcoin? You always receive rewards in whatever asset you should give the network. So if you give the network Bitcoin, you'll get Bitcoin back. If you give the network Rune, you'll get Rune back. If you give them both, you'll get both back. So it's always receiving rewards in whatever asset you, you provide to the network. And you kind of alluded to this already, but I just want to double down and and uh, make sure that I'm clear on this. What is the difference between providing a single-sided stake to like a Bitcoin LP versus contributing my Bitcoin to the savers module? So when you provide single-sided as an LP position, you are contributing Bitcoin, but you're not contributing the room. So effectively, what actually happens in the background is that half of that Bitcoin basically gets sold into Rune. And so you are price exposed to both the Bitcoin and the Rune, even though you only actually gave the network Bitcoin or gave the network Rune, depending on which side of the one side that you went in on. So you take the price exposure of both assets if you are an LP, no matter how you provide the liquidity, you always take on the price exposure of both. But as a saver, you only take on the price exposure of the asset that you provide, which could be Bitcoin or Ether or Doge or Bitcoin Cash, AVAX, Atom, whatever it might be you have a very, very low risk situation because your only thing you're exposed to is the price risk of Bitcoin itself, the asset that you give up, 
and the protocol risk of just any the protocol risk that comes with any DeFi project that you might interact with. And how am I actually deriving yield on the saver? Am I earning network fees? Am I earning rewards from the LP? Like, what is the saver getting? How are they getting their interest? Good question. So, as an LP, you have basically two sources of revenue. One is this: the swaps that are happening in the network that are producing are being charged fees and left left in the pool for your benefit, as well as block rewards. So every every block that the rune is emitted into the pools to help bolster. Uh, yield in the earlier days of the network. And so as a saver, you are entitled to that same reward, but instead of getting 100% of your reward, you get 50% of that reward. And the other 50% just goes to the regular LPs or who are taking on more of a risk than you are. Could you help me understand why there are slippage fees when I'm entering or exiting a saver's position? Yes. Good question. So in order to enter and exit a saver's position, you have to acquire a synthetic asset synthetic Bitcoin, for example. Now, you don't actually have to have it. Like You don't actually need a Thor wallet or Thor chain wallet to do any of this. If you can just literally do it from any Bitcoin wallet in the world and just send some Bitcoin in, take your position, and then withdraw your Bitcoin back out later, all with your BC1 address, you don't actually have to have some rune, have some a Thor wallet. Not required. The network kind of holds it on your behalf. So, But you have to go from, you put in that Bitcoin, it gets basically swapped to Rune. And then from that Rune, we admit the synthetic Bitcoin that is that represents the, the ownership of that pool and a partial ownership of that pool. And then the network just holds that synthetic Bitcoin into a separate vault somewhere on the, on the network. And then uh, we generate yield into that little vault and what you are owning a percentage of that vault. So as we just mint more synthetics into that vault, your purchasing power actually increases. And then whenever you want to, Withdraw, you can just send us like a send some dust, Bitcoin dust at the network and say, oh, just give me withdrawal, like give me, I'll give me all my Bitcoin back just through a dust transaction. And then it just, all right, cool. I'm going to send you back all your Bitcoin plus all your interest you received. And then if you go from the synthetic asset back to the layer one asset, which there are swap fees that are, that are incurred in that, in that process. Very cool. And is that vault managed by like a multi-sig or an MPC or, or how is that secured? That's just done by the protocol itself. There's no MPC, there's no TSS, nothing like that happening. It's just, it's just like a, it's basically like a wallet that doesn't have a private keys, right? It's a, it's a wallet that's generated by the network itself. There's no private key. The only thing that can actually tell things to move in and out of it is the net, literally the network itself, the protocol itself. And I noticed that uh, the caps were just raised. Yep. I remember the, the raise the cap meme yeah. during the initial <laughs> days of, of the LPing. Uh, so how do you guys determine, A, what the cap is, and B, when to raise it? So whenever we launch, especially major features, we like to be more cautious in the way we approach it. We don't like to just like rip the bandaid off and then like yolo our way into some major new feature that could be buggy or could some you know, risk to it. So we like to start small and start cautiously. And so when we launched this new savers product, we put a limit on the synthetic assets in the pool to be 15% of the, the depth of the pool itself. So we launched this, this feature... People started to dump Bitcoin and Ethereum, especially into the network to get their yield. Everything's going smoothly. We haven't seen any significant, I mean, some minor bugs here and there, but nothing to be really concerned about. The demand is there, obviously. We haven't seen any reasons to slow down. There's nothing, there haven't been any red flags or anything like this. And so we just kind of prompt the community and say, do you want to raise the caps from 15% of the pool depth or to 30% or do you want to go to 50% or what? So the community voted. They wanted to go to 30%. And so then we have plans to go to 50% or maybe even more than 50%, 50% 
through other mechanisms, such as another longer conversation. But of course, we always talk about safety and security and all these kind of things. And in the end, it is the community that decides of how far down this road we want to go. Yeah. And shout out to the team that worked on that. I Yesterday, I entered multiple positions with different L1 assets, and it was super simple. Ledger integration, very secure feeling, one-click functions. It's awesome. So congrats. I mean, thank you, man. That this feature is so remarkable. Like it, this doesn't exist in DeFi. It only exists in CeFi. Actually, it doesn't exist in CeFi either because they're all they're all dead. They all died. But uh, it, now it exists solely in the DeFi space, which is kind of remarkable. And it's so easy to inter- interact with. It's like it's so clean, so simple. I even know of, of a, a very well-known and famous person who's building a like a wrapper around the Thorchain savers just for Bitcoiners. And so it's like it'd be like. I'm making this up. It'd like be bitcoinsavers.com or some domain or wherever it is. And it's just you can you can connect any wallet you want. It can be a ledger, it could be a treasure, it could be a trust wallet, it could be like, I don't know, enter wallet name here. It literally doesn't matter. And just gives you like a QR code to scan and like send the tokens in, the Bitcoin in, and then like you're good. You're good. That's all you gotta do. So clean, so simple. Just send a transaction. That's the only thing you only gotta do. And like, and then everything else is just taken care of. Can you help me steel man this? Because it feels and sounds like it's too good to be true. (laughs) I'll tell you this. With everything that we've done as a project, I've heard that statement. (laughs) Even in the earliest days when we're like, hey, we're going to do cross-chain swaps in a trustless way uh, that's completely decentralized. Like people would throw rocks at us. You know, even like Hayden from Uniswap was just like throwing shade. You know, said so either it's a scam or they just don't don't know that it's broken or something like this. I think that's what he said. And like, and I get it. Like, we are pushing the envelope in significant ways as a community, as a project. But if the concern is like that, it's just too good to be true. If that's like your biggest concern that people have, that I'm fine with because that'll just that'll subside and go away. Like, nobody believes that cross chain swaps anymore are too good to be true. They were like back in 2017 when we were like talking, but but today, like nobody really questions anymore because it's been working for years. Like straight up been functioning and working for years. So the savers concept, like you're welcome to go into the depths of understanding the math and how it actually is structured and works. And you'll find that it actually is like backed by actual real yield. It's not some sort of fake yield that's being manifested from nowhere. It's actually generating yield from like act by by providing an actual value that other people are willing to pay for. Right. That, that's the crazy thing here. Like we sometimes forget about that in crypto land, but like the more you learn about it and how it works the more you realize that it actually does work in general. And if you don't do that work, well, then just wait six months and you'll find that Sabres is still around <laughs> and still doing what it does. Yeah. And again, the uh, the interest rates are super realistic. You're not looking at like four-figure returns or anything like that. Yeah. The the interest rates, I, I assume the interest rates will naturally come down because the product market fit of what this thing does is ridiculously good. Like BlockFi has more Bitcoin just because they were offering interest rates on Bitcoin of like 0.02% APY. And they had much more Bitcoin than like Liquid Network and Lightning Network combined multiplied by five. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like they were hugely successful just on that one idea of giving somebody yield on a, on a minuscule amount of Bitcoin. And here we are offering 4% at the current moment. But as more people pile into the system, the yield will naturally come down. We can't be like Terra UST and be like promised 20% fixed rate, blah, blah, blah. That's nonsensical. We have to be realistic. We have to respond to the market demands, right? So if the demand for this feature is massive, then the yield will naturally come down with it. 
And so they'll naturally find like a good balancing point, you know, of a supply and demand that's got that, that point of balance between those two points. And so we'll just naturally find it over time. Totally. And is Savers a precursor to a lending protocol or is that on the roadmap? Yes. Uh, lending is on the roadmap. Again, this is one of those things that's like, it sounds like it's too good to be true, but trust me, it, I, I think it's, I'm very bullish on it and you're welcome to look into the math and understand how it works. I, I made a YouTube video. We, we can link in the show notes here if you want to, of like an hour long, just explaining in depth and in detail, like what this is and how it works, blah, blah, blah. But what makes it so remarkable, not just the fact that it's cross-chain, right? It's actually offering Bitcoin collateral for you know an actual uh, Bitcoin loan, right? In a decentralized way, not just Bitcoin, but Ethereum and Doge and Bitcoin Cash and AVAX and BNB and whatever other chains that get added downstream. Like that by itself would have been a gargantuan thing, just single-handedly on that particular little little tidbit right there. What we actually did, we actually designed an entire new lending protocol that is structurally very different than how we think about MakerDAO or Alve or Compound when these guys. And because of this new structure to how it works, we can offer a 0% interest on your loan, no liquidations at all. You never get liquidated, even when the collateral drops below the value of the, of the debt. And now that sounds like we would become insolvent or some massive problem. Actually, it's beneficial for the network when that does happen. So we actually really like it when it happens, right? And it has no expiration to these things. So you can, you take out a loan, pay it back in 30 years. I don't care. And so you can actually use this loan to, to like, really improve your actual physical life. Like you can actually go take a loan, have 0% interest, no liquidations and no expiration. So you can go ahead and buy that car with your Bitcoin while still maintaining the price exposure to the Bitcoin that you have or buy that house or do that thing or take that vacation or I don't know, take your your girlfriend out for a nice dinner or something. I don't know, whatever you just want to do that actually improves your life and enjoys life. And so like that is going to be one of the most gargantuan things that we've done as a community is this whole lending design because it's just going to make everything else look like antiquated overnight. Yeah, I'm halfway through that video and it's really cool just to see the the passion you have for building a product that can help empower people financially. But that's the point of DeFi, right? The point of <laughs> DeFi isn't to like degen people and make them millionaires, which obviously that does happen, right? And as people get people get excited about that. I get that, you know, everybody wants to be a millionaire, right? But like the point of DeFi is to create financial primitives or instruments that allow people to empower them to accomplish what they want to accomplish in their lives, to open businesses, to be able to uh, escape tyrant fiat systems or manipulated markets like Wall Street, for example, to escape that system and, and be engaged into a new financial system that treats everybody with pure equality and do it all transparently, clearly. That's what we're here for. That's what we should be focused on as a community. But we oftentimes get distracted by, you know, 20% fixed rate yields and money go up numbers and this kind of stuff, which I get. Like It's, it's addictive, right? It, it makes sense that it would be. But like, let's not lose focus of the, what the power of what it is that we're doing and how we're literally rebuilding the entire financial system in a significant way to the betterment of humanity. 100%. Kind of wrapping up. I had a chat with the Shapeshift boys and I was wondering if there was anything interesting that I could pull your ear on. And John said that I should bring up Archeo. <laughs> <laughs> Can you share a little bit about what that is and why you're so psyched on it? Yes. So Archeo is another project that that I, me and John and, and Michael Perklin are involved with. I guess you could call us co-founders, maybe the correct term possibly. But Archeo, the, the idea behind Archeo is to create a free market solution to blockchain data. Because right now, when you use, uh, let's say MetaMask, for example, it uses Infura 
as its data source to get like how much ether you have in your wallet or your transaction history or blah, 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 like whatever it might be, or to query smart contracts for information or, or whatever it might be. And then Fiera is a centralized entity that can choose to disable certain contracts that it doesn't like, like Tornado Cash, for example. They can collect your information. They can associate your physical location, like your IP address, with your wallet address. Mm, that sounds problematic to me, right? Like that becomes a significant issue, right? And so I think what Archeo was trying to accomplish, or what I'm trying to do with John and, and, and Michael, or those guys, is to create a new system where we can fully decentralize the access to that data that blockchains are building without asking permission, without going through all these procedures, without being tracked, without like any of this information. This is actually a critical component that we're missing within like in basic infrastructure of the space. Like I was saying in the, the very beginning of this thing about like how I'm personally offended that we have to use centralized entities to, to do things we should be able to do in a centralized way, but like cross-chain swaps, for example, this is conceptually the same thing. We have to ask and fear information about Ethereum, which is open source and freely available data. And some reason I'm asking some centralized entity who wants to track me for this data, we shouldn't have to put up with that. So what, what I want to do with John and those guys and the Shapeshift guys is to like build a new free market solution for anybody to provide that data and make money doing so. Super cool. Cognizant of your time, I guess to wrap up, you're obviously psyched on Archeo, but what's something on ThorChain's roadmap you're really excited about? And what are the best ways that people can keep in contact with you and with the project? Uh, I mean, there's always a lot going on. Lending is obviously a big thing. I'm super excited, but we talked about that already. We got order books that are also part of the roadmap, which I'm pretty excited about. I even was talking recently with some people about how we can change savers to do fixed rate income in a way that's actually sustainable, that actually really functionally literally works and it provides no additional risk to the protocol itself. That's probably going to happen at some point, I'm assuming. But like, there's so many things happening in this, in this field. Like, in effect, like Thorchain is replacing banks, replacing the things that we th- thought about what BlockFi did, does, lending and and like interest accounts, blah blah blah, all that stuff. We as a as a protocol and a fully decentralized, fully open source, fully transparent system will do all those things for the entire industry across any chain that is of a significant value. There's so much there to be bullish about. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. <laughs> Yeah. So I've been a huge Thorchain fan for years now. I've been following you for years. So it was an absolute honor to be able to share the mic with you for an hour and to get to know you, get to meet you. I was a little nervous about this podcast because I'm just so psyched on the work you do and what Thorchain is and the conversation definitely delivered. So I want to thank you, Chad, for coming to join the pod, uh, sharing your passion, sharing what's going on with Thorchain. It was really cool to be able to chat with you. Uh, Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Great conversation. Sweet. Cheers. Well, what did you think of that conversation? It was really cool to learn about the process of adding new networks to ThorChain and not that it's necessarily the total value that's stored on the chain, but the desire of that blockchain network's community to be part of ThorChain. It was also really cool to learn about how the team built decentralized protocols to replicate what's done in the traditional and centralized finance space, except for custody being handled by the ThorChain network protocol. But ultimately, it was really refreshing to hear the passion that Chad has for building these decentralized financial systems to empower people rather than create ridiculous short-term yields and replace banks in the services that they offer across multiple blockchains. 
On that note, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please keep Neo News Today in mind when voting for your Neo Council representative as part of Neo's governance process. We appreciate you and look forward to catching you next time.